If you have a Bible, would you take it, please, and turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is in the New Testament, so they're in the back half of your Bible, probably about right in the middle of the New Testament. Um, you'll see First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians, and then Ephesians. And today we begin a series uh, through this book. In fact, this weekend, in some ways, we've begun a series through this book. We had a study yesterday that some of you were able to be a part of to get this big picture of the book of Ephesians. And we're just going to kind of continue that a little bit and try to provide a summary of the entire book of Ephesians. So that's um, we'll focus on verses 1 and 2 to a certain extent, but also think about the whole book, as it were. Uh, for as delicious and rich as it is, cheesecake is a fairly simple dessert. The ingredients list isn't usually very long, and the process of making it isn't very complicated, but the results are wonderful, at least in my opinion. And just to be clear, this is not a cooking demonstration. I'm not going to make cheesecake right now. It is a sermon. Um, and as we start this new sermon series, I think we could say that the book of Ephesians is like a cheesecake. Now, before I explain that, I want to say two things. One is that could be the first time that anyone has ever said that. Uh, so just taking that historic moment that you heard it first here. Um, and second, as I said that, I thought, well, if the book of Ephesians is like a cheesecake, then I think when we finish this sermon series, we should all have cheesecake and coffee. I think that would be a good idea. So those two things aside, <laughs> for now, let me just try to explain how the book of Ephesians is like a cheesecake. Uh, as you consider some of the paragraphs and the sentences and the, the phrases within this, this letter, they are rich, they are decadent, they're theologically delicious in some ways. As we step into the first section of the letter next week, we're going to find that we could spend weeks and months covering all of the truths that are just in this one long sentence that Paul writes for us. And yet, for all of its richness, this letter is actually fairly simple. There are a handful of themes. If you were with us yesterday, we, we found them fairly easily. And even the outline of this book is fairly easy to find. It's, it's simple. And there's, there's lots of practical applications that flow from the themes and the messages that run through this. All the theological depth leads to very practical things in our, in our lives. It's a rich book but it's also a simple one. And so as we start this, this series, I want us to have a vision for the, the broad view of the book so that we can remember its, its overarching message while we spend time digging deep into it and savoring all of its flavors. To use a more common uh, and less delicious illustration than cheesecake, I want us to see the entire forest before we're tempted to get lost looking at the trees. So let's start at the very beginning, which, as we all know, is a very good place to start. Uh, Ephesians 1.1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now, we call this the, the book of Ephesians, but it is, in fact, a letter. And, and more properly, it's an epistle, which might be thought of as a more formal letter written and even possibly edited by a scribe. Um, in studying an epistle, it's important to, to note who the author is and who the recipients are of that epistle. Uh, that same information would be important if you get a letter out of your mail tomorrow. You, you need to know who sent it and, and who it's for if you're going to understand what it's trying to communicate. Um, and that's important here as well. If we're going to understand how this book applies to us today, we need to understand who sent it and 
who it was sent to. So the first word of the letter tells us exactly who wrote it. Unlike our letters, uh, it's signed at the beginning, not at the end. And it was Paul, the apostle, and the key figure in the growth of the early church who wrote this letter. We find in chapter 6 that one of Paul's companions, a man named Tychicus, uh, was sent to Ephesus with this letter where he was likely the first person to read it aloud to the Ephesian church. It could, in fact, be that that Tychicus was responsible for physically writing down this letter as Paul dictated the words to him. Uh, That may sound strange, but the the act of writing was not a simple thing in the first century. There weren't ballpoint pens or laptop computers. And so people who had skill in the art of writing were able to do it well, often were employed to do that as scribes. But whether or not Paul physically wrote this original letter, he was was the author. He is the, the man behind the words that are here. In fact, he seems to be the only author. If you look at some of Paul's others letters, other letters, he'll mention some of his companions and say that the letter is from them as well. But here is just Paul. Paul's the only one mentioned. Paul, specifically the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes his, uh, emphasizes, his emphasis on his apostleship shows that he understood his unique role within the growing church of Jesus Christ. He was called to proclaim the gospel and to establish churches, communities of followers of Jesus that formed as he told the good news about, how, about Jesus and then helped those new believers in Christ understand what it meant to follow the resurrected Jesus who was now indwelling them with his very spirit. Paul was not a, a pastor. He was more of a missionary, but not a missionary who stayed in, in one place. Rather, his burden was to get the gospel to places it had never been heard and see churches established and then move on and do the same thing in another location. And he took this task very seriously, knowing that it was in fact given to him, as as verse one says, by the will of God himself. He knew that this was God's will for him, this task of apostleship. We read about this, we read of, of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, and it was a dramatic conversion. We know his, this story well. He was raised as a a strict Jew, but he was literally knocked off his horse on the way to persecute those who were saying that Jesus was the Messiah. And then he was convinced of that truth himself. From the very beginning, Jesus made it clear that Paul had a unique call on his life. Ananias was the the man that first uh, instructed Paul, and he was told by the Lord, Ananias was told by the Lord that Paul was a chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul heard that and he took that calling seriously. He accepted all the difficulties that came with it. If you look in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, this would be years after that task was first given to him, but we still hear his passion for that assignment from the Lord. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
this unique call to proclaim the gospel to all people, especially to the Gentiles, is a driving force behind his letter. The welcoming of, of all people into the people of God through faith in Jesus was not something that, that happened easily or, or simply. And Paul is writing to help the church see that the basis for unity within the church and how that unity is expressed on a daily basis is found in what God has done. We can relate to, in some ways, the difficulty of this call to unity in the midst of diversity. If you've been in the church at all, you know the the blessing as well as the unique challenge of a faith that invites people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to find hope in Jesus. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a hard thing. And Paul knew this more than any of us. As we read this letter, we find out that he's writing, in fact, from prison. We can read about how he ended up there in the final chapters of of Acts. And uh, there we we see that he landed in prison in Rome in large part because he was not willing to back down on this conviction that the gospel that he was made a minister of was for all people, including the Gentiles. So as we think about the unity that he's going to be calling us to in this book, calling the church of Jesus Christ to, we should remember that this is something that Paul was willing to be imprisoned for. Maybe you can step back for a minute and envision Paul. Just picture him in your mind, whatever he looks like. But here he is, a man who's been persecuted for his faith and for insisting on the welcoming of all people into the family of God. You can see him in chains, he says. He's in chains. You can see him in chains, maybe pacing as he dictates the words of this letter to Tychicus or to to another scribe who is writing these words down with a a reed pen on some parchment or a piece of papyrus. Maybe you could envision this letter being rolled up by Tychicus and safely stowed somewhere for the journey that was from Rome to Ephesus, where Tychicus would then unroll that parchment and read it to a group of believers, some of whom Paul had met and some who had been added to the fellowship later who had only heard about him. They hear these words from Paul that he sent for them to hear. And as you follow Tychicus and that original letter on that journey, we start to move from thinking about the author of this letter to the recipients of the letter, who are named in verse 1 as well. Ephesians 1.1, the second part says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The recipients of this letter lived in the ancient city of Ephesus, a city that was probably a somewhere between a quarter to a half a million people when Paul was writing this. It was a major city. It was a port city and had major roads that were running through it, meaning that it was a place that was full of activity and full of diversity. In fact, it, it could very well be that Ephesus was identified by Paul simply as the main city in this region and that the letter was probably intended to be circulated among other cities, but Ephesus was just the most prominent and the most important of all those places. But almost certainly, Ephesus was was foremost in Paul's mind. It was a place that he had spent between two and a half and three years. Think about two and a half and three years of, of of his ministry he spent in Ephesus. That's a long time. Think about somewhere that you've spent two or or three years doing work. It's, it's a long period of time. And he was there helping to establish the Ephesian church. You can We can read about it in Acts 19 especially. And some of those receiving this letter had surely were there. They'd seen Paul rejected by the synagogue leaders when he first brought the gospel to Ephesus. 
Some of them were likely in the crowd the day that a riot broke out. You see, the, the gospel took hold of the city of Ephesus so strongly that it began to affect the local religion and the local business. Think about that. The gospel is so powerful that it, the businesses are being affected. Uh, in Acts 19, we're told that those who had practiced magic were burning their, their books of, of spells, breaking with their former beliefs and practices. If you can imagine a giant bonfire of magic books because people had come to trust in Jesus and were no longer going to be following those ways. What an amazing scene. And then later we find that the local silversmiths who made little shrines uh, to Artemis, they started losing a significant amount of business because the followers of Jesus were turning away from idolatry and were worshiping Christ alone. And all of this eventually boiled over into a day-long riot and surely some of those who heard this, this letter from, from Paul could also still hear the shouting in their ears as that riot was happening and the people were yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Surely some of them could still fear the, feel the fear of that day. And surely the hostility of some people in that city persisted. And those Christians were persecuted and pushed out. The fact that Paul was writing to those in the city of Ephesus is not insignificant. And it's something that we'll come back to from time to time. But the fact that those he was writing to were, were Ephesians was in fact not nearly as important to Paul as the fact that they were saints and they were faithful in Christ Jesus. That they were those seated in the heavenly places with Christ because they believed in him for salvation. Paul was writing to Ephesus, yes. But more importantly, he was writing to the church in Ephesus. In fact, it's this new identity as saints, as those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, that Paul wants everyone who reads this letter, including us, to emphasize in our hearts and our lives. From this first sentence to the closing benediction, this letter is telling us something, and this is what I think is telling us. God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. That statement's going to serve as our big idea for the letter of Ephesians. You're probably going to hear it often over the coming weeks, but let me say it again. This is what I think Ephesians is telling us. God in Christ has made us a new people. Why? So that we might experience a new unity, a unity that's never been experienced before and never will apart from Jesus, and that we might walk in a new way. God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. Even the way Paul structures this, this whole letter emphasizes this message. The, the simplest outline for Ephesians is to find in chapters 1 through 3, Paul's theological statements, and then in chapters 4 through 6, his practical applications. That's not to say that theology is separate from practice. In fact, the structure of the book would would seem to say the opposite. It would seem to say that our theology is what drives our proper application. Understanding what God has done in us drives uh, how, how we live. So Paul tells us that we are, the new we are new people who are in Christ and how that identity brings about a new kind of unity that's unlike anything the world has ever known and how that the theological truths about our identity should then overflow in the way that we walk each day. In other words, God in Christ has made us a new people 
so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. So for the rest of our time this afternoon, I want us to think a bit more about these big themes and how they unfold uh, in this letter. I want us to consider the forest before we look at the trees in coming weeks, or I want us to take in before us the the whole cheesecake before we have a few bites. (laughs) Let's call the first theme a new people. A new people. We often joke that the, the right answer to any question in church is... Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> Therefore, if, if I were to tell you that one of the key themes in the letter of Ephesians is Jesus Christ, then you would think I'm being a little too simplistic. And yet, what Christ has done and who we are as individual Christians and as children of God through faith are major themes within this book. The, the way Paul explains this relies heavily on a phrase, and it's the phrase, in Christ. Somewhere around 18 times Paul speaks of who we are in Christ or what God has done for us in him with the majority of those statements actually coming just within the first two chapters, 18 times almost, maybe more like 14 in the first two chapters and then a few more later on. Uh, Just listen to how much Paul makes of who we are in Christ in this first paragraph. It's almost verses 3 through 10 are one long sentence, but Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Listen to what Paul says about who we are. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. (laughs) There's a lot in there. Pray for me as I try to preach that next week or however many weeks, I don't know. (laughs) But to use a theological term, Ephesians reveals, in fact, a strong or a high Christology, a, a, a strong doctrine of Christ that was developing in the early days of the church's establishment and in some sense comes to full flower here at Ephesians and in Colossians. To state it more practically, Paul is concerned to help those he is writing to find their core identity in the truth of who they are in Christ, showing that every other identity that we have should stand as a distant second to the fact that we are in Jesus. Our core identity is found in who we are in Christ and every other identity stands as a distant second. Think think about all of the other ways other than being in Christ that we are tempted to define ourselves. All the places we're told to find our identity. 
Establishing our identity seems to just happen naturally, and it happens in countless different ways. Let me give you a funny one from our house. In our house, there's a division between the blonde-haired people and the brown-haired people. And there's a lot of discussion about just what color someone's hair is, because some, is it brown, is it blonde? Everyone wants someone on their team, and that's their identity. (laughs) You can think back maybe to your time in school. In school, we define ourselves or defined ourselves in different ways, or we were defined by others. You can think about who you were in in high school or in college, but these cliques naturally form. There's the nerds and there's the, the jocks and there's the popular crowd and there's the theater kids and there's the loners and so on and so forth. As we get older, we become defined by if we're married or single, if we have young children or we're empty nesters. We define ourselves by our political parties and on and on and on and on. These identities not only put us into groups, but they also put us out of groups. They sometimes make enemies of certain people in our lives. Our core identity then is not a small thing. It has deep consequences. How we define ourselves has deep consequences. And for the Christian, allowing our core identity to be the fact that we are in Christ, that we are children of God and members of his kingdom, that has deep implications as well. We're tempted to define ourselves by our ethnicity or by our jobs. We're tempted to to define uh, ourselves by by the city that we live in, by our relationship status. But if you are a Christian, every other identity takes second place. Nothing is as important as the fact that you are a child of God through faith in Jesus. Just think about how you might introduce yourself to to other people. What do we do? We tell them our name, tell them what we do for a living. We tell them what our families are like. We tell them our favorite TV show and tell them so many other things. But when it comes to the most important thing about us, there's a sense in which the first thing that we should say, the way that we should introduce ourselves is to say, I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ. I'm I'm a follower of Jesus because that identity is what is most important and most life-changing about us. Now, even in the way that I'm describing this, we're all probably thinking individualistically about this. However, this identity as a follower of Jesus is not purely an individual thing. It's it's not something that, that has bearing on my personal life alone. In fact, our identity as Christians is less individualistic and more of a corporate identity. And this corporate identity of being in Christ together leads into the second major, major focus of Paul, namely a new unity. So let's think about a new unity briefly. The, the deep theology of the first part of this letter serves to show the foundation of the unity that should be found amongst all people who call themselves Christians. So having shown what the gospel has done for those who believe, Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, meaning in light of all that you are in Christ, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the, fl- in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in, in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, Jesus, uh, now, now in, but 
I lost my place. <laughs> but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's focus on unity flows from the truth of the gospel and the reality of the new kingdom, but it is also an, an overflow of the challenge that was faced by the early church that was unique to them, but is also universal. In the early church, there was this strong division between Jew and Gentile, a hostility that brought division into churches like the one in Ephesus. And having witnessed this division firsthand, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, wants to make it crystal clear that if we are in Christ, it's not possible for us to be divided. He talks about the illustration of the body of Christ. If we are the body of Christ, there is one body of Christ. We are united, whether we like it or not. We are one. We cannot be divided if we are in his body. There's a longing for unity in the world. But at the same time, there's, there's nothing that we can be unified around. Paul is not teaching unity for unity's sake. He's teaching unity for Christ's sake and because of what Christ has done. He is showing us that when we find our core identity by, of who we are in Christ, of, of being in Christ, then nothing else can divide us. So the body of Christ is made up of a bunch of people that really could have absolutely nothing else in common. We are not unified around anything other than Christ. We're not unified around being Americans or Filipinos or, or Haitians or any other ethnicity, which is why you're never going to see the flag of a particular nation behind us because that's not what unifies us. That's not where our unity is found. We're not united by our likes or our dislikes. We're not united by our preferences or by our political parties. We're united because of our common faith. We're united in Christ. And that unity is unlike anything else that the world could ever offer us. It's, it's the only basis of unity that will endure. Now, that doesn't mean it's simple. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's simple either to accept it or to live it out. Paul calls it a mystery that has been revealed. Yes, it's been revealed, but it's also one we're still always trying to get our minds around. And not just get our minds around, but get our lives and our hearts around because our new identity as God's people and our new unity leads to a new walk. A new walk, and that's the last thing we'll think about. A new walk. Trevor very helpfully pointed out yesterday that this letter pivots on Ephesians 4.1. Look at that verse, Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Having seen what God has done for us in Christ, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. According to uh, Ephesians 2.1, the new creation that God has accomplished in our hearts is what sets our, our course for walking in the good works that God has laid out before us. Paul spells out, uh, this walk spells this walk out for us in the rest of the book then. He, he says in 4.17 that we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He says in 5.1 that this means we are to walk in love. In 5.15 he says it means that we must be careful how we walk. In, in 6.13 and 14 he says that we must stand against all the schemes of the devil. 
and the spiritual forces that come against us, resting in the fact that we are children of God, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. This new walk looks a, a bit like taking off old clothes and putting on new ones. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then the rest of that chapter on into chapter five, we find that we are to, what we're, the things that we're supposed to put off and the things that we are to put on so that we can live and walk as God's new people in the new unity that he has accomplished in us. In chapter five, verse 22 through chapter six, verse nine, we see how our identity affects our key relationships. In other words, having encountered Christ and been changed by him, we walk in a new way in every relationship of our life. All of our relationships are changed. The newness of what God has done for us in Christ and the newness of the unity that, that he has brought means that we have a completely new kind of walk. You remember the story in Genesis of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord? He's about to come face to face with his brother Esau, who he had run away from years earlier and who he suspected wanted to, to kill him. He had good reason to suspect that because Esau had said back then, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and he had not seen him. And so he was scared. Uh, and the Lord comes to Jacob and Jacob struggles with God and asks for God's blessing. And as the wrestling, you remember that part where the Lord touches Jacob's hip and dislocates his hip in a moment so that the next day as he's walking towards his brother, he's limping as he goes. One of my favorite pictures from the book of, of, of Genesis is Jacob limping. His encounter with God left him with a limp. I like to think that we're, that we're all a bit like Jacob, such that when we encounter God, we are, we are humbled and our walk changes. As followers of Jesus, you've heard me say it before, we're what I like to call children of the dislocated hip. That's who we are. We, we, don't, we don't walk like the rest of the world. We walk in humble love. We're careful how we walk. We walk in reliance on Christ. We walk in newness of life. We walk in submission we seek to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called, a calling that Jesus modeled for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. Which makes me think this, that in many ways, Paul is telling us in the second half of Ephesians that if we are in Christ, as he talks about in the first half, if we are in Christ, then we need to learn how to walk like Christ. If we want to make this book as Christocentric as Paul maybe says it is, we would say, you are in Christ, now walk like Christ. And not simply as individuals, but as God's church, we need to learn how to limp together so that the world can see what Christ has done, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Maybe that's what we're going to learn as we go through the book of Ephesians. We're going to learn who we are in Christ and how we can limp together before a watching world. God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity 
and walk in a new way. This is the transforming message that's held out to us in the book of Ephesians. It's, it's fathomless and it's really simple. And it's only gonna be possible for us to walk in by God's grace. Paul greets the church in Ephesians 1-2 with these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to think that through the centuries that Paul is blessing us in those words, that he's extending to us the, the grace and the peace that is ours because of what God has done for us in Christ. On the cross, Jesus reconciled us to God so that as we turn from sin and trust in him as our Messiah, as the Savior, God becomes our Father. And if we're in Christ, then Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior. And God is our Father and our friend. And the Spirit is our comforter and our teacher. So receive this blessing from Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who I'm sorry, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. As we begin this study in Ephesians, may we, may we know the grace and the peace of God that makes us new people with a new unity and a new walk. Can we take a moment of silence and, and allow maybe what we see in the book as a whole today allow the spirit to apply that to our hearts, but maybe also just to pray um, that over these coming weeks that God would use the book of Ephesians to, to transform us as individuals, to transform us as a, a church, to make us all more like Christ and to make us like Christ together. So let's take a moment of silence and pray to that end, and then I will close us. Father, as we stand on the edge, as it were, of this study, just peering down through these chapters, thinking about all the truth that is here and all the application and the things that will be hard to wrap our minds around and the things that will be hard for us to, to change our lives and follow. Well, we pray that you would fill us with grace and peace. That you'd fill us with the strength that we need to learn and to grow. Lord, Fill us even with excitement to see how your word can change us, to see how we can grow in these things, to remember what you have done, to see the deep unity that you're forming in us, and then to walk in light of who you've made us to be in Christ. Lord, we can do none of this on our own. It's only by, by your strength that our minds can be renewed, that we would even have the strength to comprehend all of the wonderful things that you've done for us, that we would have the ability to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So Lord, we're resting in Christ, we're resting in, in your spirit, and, and Lord, we give you thanks that, that Christ has done this perfectly, that, that Christ has fulfilled all of these things on our behalf. And so we, we praise him Lord, all of this is to the praise of your glory. And so we give you all the praise and the glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.